many movies have been made in recent years about superheroes. Uh, not just Superman and not just Batman, but Iron Man, Thor, um, Wonder Woman, and of course Captain America. If this thing was working, you would have seen those pictures by now. <laughs> and there are others. <clears throat> and some of these superheroes come from a different world. And they have supernatural powers that they use to uh, help save the world, or at least a part of it. Today I'm going to talk about another superhero who also came from a different world and had supernatural powers and came to save the world. But the way he went about saving the world was a little bit different, well, much different <laughs> than the way the uh, superheroes of today's movies uh, do it. They have their super physical strength. They use their physical strength and their advanced weapons of combat to overcome their enemies and bring them to justice. In contrast, I want to talk about this other superhero and how he went about saving the world. A few months I told uh, Dick that the next time that I uh, would preach, uh, would speak at uh, CBC, that I wanted to do a sermon on the incarnation of God in Christ as a kind of follow-up of Dick's very excellent sermon on the attributes of God. You may remember in that series, the pastor preached on such things as God is all-powerful. God doesn't change. God is everywhere. God knows everything. God is love, and God is just, and God is triune. So forth. So today we come to God incarnate. All right, that's Thor, I guess. <laughs> okay, that's Iron Man, Thor, Wonder Woman, and Captain America. Okay, and then a host more. Thanks to my grandchildren, we have these. <laughs> yeah, and what I want us to do is to keep in mind those attributes, that divine attributes of God, because it's based on those attributes that I make an assertion that the Christian claim that God became man in Christ is the most stupendous claim in the history of religion. And I use the word stupendous not only because it means astonishing, but it also is related to the verb stupefy. Now, when someone stupefies you, your reaction might be, Whoa! What in the world? You are stunned. Now, we who are raised in the church take the doctrine of incarnation for granted. We're not stunned. But just think for a moment what it means when we say that this man Jesus of Nazareth this common man from a small town was God incarnate that's amazing now if we were to refer to a God of polytheism it wouldn't be so astonishing I mean the, the, like the, God, the Greek gods were conceived to be rather glorified heavenly versions of human beings um Yes, they dwelled in a heavenly realm, but, but they had human-like emotions. They had gender. 
And they were able to mate with mortals, producing offspring that was half God and half man. For example, Zeus uh, mated with some females from the earth and produced demigods like Hercules and Helen of Troy. But the Christian doctrine of the incarnation, of course, is not about a God of polytheism. It's about the God of biblical monotheism. Such a God does not have human characteristics like a body, like gender, or like sex. Such a God is pure spirit. In fact, an infinite spirit. Such a God is not limited to time and space. The biblical God is everywhere. And yet he transcends the whole universe. The biblical God dwells in eternity, high above the physical world of time and space. So how then could this God, this infinite creator of all things, become a man within time and space and go through all the stages of human life, from embryo to infancy to childhood to uh, teenagehood? That's a word. To adulthood. How could this be? The Danish Christian philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said it was the absolute paradox. He believed it, but it was an absolute paradox. I call it the most stupendous claim of religion. When you think about what it means to say that this monotheistic God became man in Christ... It is no wonder that the Muslims and the Jews have a hard time believing it, let alone secular humanists for whom it is pure absurdity, nonsense. So why do we Christians believe it? Well, the simple answer is because the Bible, especially the New Testament, teaches it. Now, there's more to be said than that, which I'll get to shortly, but Let's look back at the text here to see how clearly the John 1 passage teaches that Christ is God incarnate. There are three verses out of the 18 that that Jillian read. The first one is verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The term word for John refers elsewhere in his gospel to the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. So the eternal Son of God was with God in the beginning and was in fact God. Now look at verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the Word, who was also the Son, became man. But who then is this man who was full of grace and truth? Verse 17 tells us. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Notice then that the Word, the eternal Son, who was with God and was God, became man in the person of Jesus Christ. Nothing can be clearer than that. And what is clearly stated in John 1 is also stated similarly in Hebrews chapter 1 and in Colossians chapter 1 and many other passages throughout the New Testament. 
But while we can hear these words of Scripture on this doctrine of the Incarnation, it is not easy for us to fully understand what we're saying when we say God incarnate. And so I pass on to my second main statement, and that is the church's struggle to understand heresies and councils. One of the ways the early church tended to clarify its doctrine of the God incarnate was to confront divergent views which the church uh, looked upon as heresies, came to look upon as heresies. One such heresy was docetism. This was a second century offshoot from main, main Christianity. The term docetism comes from a Greek word which means to seem or to appear. So the docetists believed that Jesus seemed to have a human body, but it was in appearance only. It was not a real flesh and blood body. So for the docetists, Jesus was divine. I mean, he was God, but not fully human. He looked human. He spoke human. But his body was not physical. It was a kind of phantom body. You see, the docetists were influenced by a Greek philosophy that said that the physical world is evil and only the spiritual world is good. So in order to maintain Jesus' goodness, they had to deny his real physical presence in the world. Well, the church could not accept this. The Bible is very clear that Jesus lived and suffered and bled and died and, in fact, arose bodily. In Luke 24, 39, the risen Christ says to his disciples, Look at my hands and feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Considering all that the four Gospels said about Jesus as a real man, the church insisted that John 1.14, the word became flesh, must be taken literally. And so docetism was condemned as a heresy. The church held that Christ was not only God, but he was a full human being, fully God, fully man, even though it couldn't explain how this could be. The second heresy was Arianism. The Arians agreed that the Word, or the Son of God, did become flesh. They agreed on that. But they didn't believe that the Son was co-eternal with the Father. The Son was at the, with the Father at the beginning of creation, but not from all eternity. Matter of fact, the, Father, the first thing that the Father created was the Son. He brought the Son into existence and then through the Son, he created everything else. But the problem with such a view, is that view was that it made the Son a lesser God. I mean, how can the Son be fully God if he lacks the divine attribute of eternity, which means no beginning and no end? So you see, Arianism had the opposite problem of docetism. They believed that Jesus was fully man, but he wasn't fully God. The church leaders gathered together in the, the city of Nicaea in AD 325 and condemned Arianism. And the result was the now famous words of the Nice Nicene Creed. 
And I have a piece of that creed on the screen here, which I would like for us to recite. Now, the Nicene Creed has three paragraphs. The first paragraph is about the Father, the second is about the Son, and the third is about the Holy Spirit. I've taken a little piece of the second paragraph. And let's say it together. I'll lead. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not created, of the same essence of the Father, as all, all things came into being. Now, two key phrases there are begotten, not created, and of the same essence as the Father. The church understood the word begotten to, to refer to an eternal relationship of father and son, not that he was created in time. And the, the term uh, same essence was meant to convey the full equality and oneness of the divine being in both the son and the father. So the Nicene Creed was meant to emphasize that that Christ was fully God and fully man in opposition to these first two heresies. But then there developed another divergent view. This is the last one I'm going to give you. I'm not going to ask you to memorize all these, <laughs> all these heresies. Um, I'm not going to give you a pop quiz at the end of the hour uh, like I might when I was teaching in college. <clears throat> Nasty guy that I was. The third... The, the third uh, uh, heresy was Nestorianism. This view held that the man Jesus and the divine word were two separate persons. Jesus was fully man and the divine word was fully God, but there was no personal union. There was only a union of the two wills. Man, the, the man Jesus and the divine word were working together in oneness in their wills to save the world. But there wasn't a personal union. Again, the church saw this as missing the mark. For as far as the church was concerned, John 1, again, taught that when God became man in Jesus Christ, there was not just a union of wills, but a personal union. The same word that was God in verse 1 was also the same person as Jesus Christ in verse 17. And from this conviction of the church, we have the Council of Chalcedon, 451, which states that while Christ has two natures, <clears throat> he has a full divine nature and he has a full human nature, the two natures are united in the one person. In John 17, Jesus prays to the Heavenly Father, and notice what he says. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world was. Here, Jesus the man identifies himself as the same person who was with God the Father before the creation of the world. It's one of the most astounding things in the Bible. The first chapter of Hebrews says similarly, similarly, boy, that's a hard word to say, similarly, you can't say it. It's very similar. 
It states that the sun created and, and uh, sustains the universe, but the sun also made purification for our sins. And so throughout the New Testament, we see that in the man Jesus, that the man Jesus and the eternal Son of God are the same person, not two persons. So Nestorians got it wrong. So the key symbol that came from Chalcedon was one person, two natures. And when we combine this symbol with a Nicene symbol of same essence, we have a theological heritage that Protestants, Catholics, and Eastern Orthodox churches agree upon or accept as a balanced statement about the incarnation that avoids the errors of divergent views. So in its struggle to understand, the church stated three things here. The persons of the Trinity have the same divine essence. There's one God. Secondly, the Son is not a lesser God, as the Arians said. And three, in the incarnation, the divine Son and Jesus the man remain the same person. How it is possible for the same person to have a full divine nature on the one hand and a full human nature on the other, the church does not understand. Nevertheless, we Christians accept these theological ideas because it very much seems that that is what the Bible is saying about our Lord Jesus Christ. So we admit that we cannot understand how God became man. It's an infinite mystery, of course. But we can understand something of why God became man. And it is in that very why that the church stakes its defense of its claim that God became man in Christ. And so in the third place, we look at the why. The why of God incarnate. And I suggest three important reasons why God became man. There are others, but I recommend these three for your thinking. The first is God became man to fulfill God's plan of righteousness for the human race. Throughout biblical history, we see the, this plan spoken of again and again. For example, God promised to Abraham that in his seed, all the families, all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. And as you look at all the prophets throughout Old Testament, gradually unveiled, step by step, there is this plan of a righteous kingdom that will come about for all that is headed up by a righteous king who came to be known as Messiah. Now, there were many relatively good kings in Israel, particularly in Judah. Um, David, Solomon, Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, Josiah. But they all had their faults, as we well know. None of them was a perfectly righteous king. None of them fulfilled the role of Messiah. And so for this reason... And because the whole human race had fallen into sin, God himself had to came to us as a full human being and fulfill righteousness for us. Jesus Christ, as God incarnate, perfectly fulfilled God's moral will. He brought the scriptures to complete fulfillment. As the Apostle Paul says of Christ, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
In Hebrews, Hebrews 4, verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who, was, who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. In 1 Peter 2, 22, it says of Christ, He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. So Christ, through his life, suffering, death, and resurrection, became God's righteous king, worthy to establish the righteous kingdom on earth as God planned. It would be nice to go on and elaborate that, but I hasten to go on to the second reason. Two, God became man to provide an adequate atonement for the sins of the world. In John chapter 1, John the Baptist says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in 1 John 2, 2, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. I think, I think that we humans have difficulty understanding how God can be both loving and just at the same time. That's a real theological problem. How can God be loving and just at the same time. It seems that God is torn between two desires. We know that God's being is one and in harmony, but it seems to us that God is torn between two desires, between God's own justice that commits him to do according to justice and God's love who constrains him to act lovingly. The Bible teaches that through the cross, God shows his love in forgiving repentant sinners because his justice is shown in that God himself, in the person of his son, paid the penalty for our sins. So justice is dealt with <clears throat> and love and mercy pour forth as God forgives us and treats us as his righteous dear children for Christ's sake. Read Romans chapter 3 for this. So, in the cross, you see, God's justice and God's love meet. They're in harmony. <coughs> Excuse me. But now, just exactly what, how was the incarnation a way of providing an adequate atonement? Well, as many theologians, uh, many theologians reason, think of it this way. Only, human, only a human being can pay the penalty for human sin. The New Testament tells us that the sacrifices in the Old Testament were not an adequate atonement. They were symbolic or they were prophetic of the real atonement that the righteous king would make. Furthermore, since, as Paul says, the wages of sin is death, if each of us paid for our own sins, got plenty of water, but thank you. <laughs> I'm just not making use of it. <clears throat> if each of us paid for our own sins, there would be no salvation. But since Christ is not only human, but also divine, his atonement was greater than all the sins of the world. That is, Christ is greater on the positive side that all the sins of the world are on the negative side. So only Christ as the God-man 
could provide an adequate atonement for the sins of the whole world. Actually, it was more than adequate because the atonement has infinite value. So Jesus, the superhero, you see, saved the world not by exercising superhuman strength to fight his enemies in warlike battle, but by fulfilling righteousness and humbling himself to the will of God to die as an atonement for our sins. What a way to save the world. Third, and the last why, God became man to bring about eternal resurrected life. Because Christ, as God incarnate, was greater than the sins of the world, death couldn't hold him. He arose on the third day to become, as Paul says, the first fruits among those who have fallen asleep. And as Paul further says, for as an Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. And for, uh, Colossians 1.18, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning from the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. And it is in this supremacy of the resurrected Christ that we see God's plan of a righteous king with the kingdom of righteousness fulfilled. So to summarize, why did God become man? <clears throat> he became man to fulfill God's plan of righteousness for the human race. God became man to, pro to provide an adequate atonement for the sins of the world. And God became man to bring about eternal resurrected life for us. So as the key biblical truth says, without the incarnation of God in Christ, there would be no salvation for us. I want to finish with a question for you. <clears throat> when you think of all that the Son of God had to go through in his incarnation, the humiliation of living through childhood as well as adulthood, all the limitations of earthly life that he willingly accepted, his taking on our pain, our sufferings, our infirmities, living a life of love to the fullest, and then taking on our sin and its consequences and being obedient to the Heavenly Father all the way to death. My question then is this. If you happen to believe in a God of love, and I think most people in America do, not in the world, but most people in America do, if you happen to believe in a God of love, happen to believe in a God of love, then can you think of a fuller, more dramatic, more supreme expression of God's love for us than what the Bible tells us God did in the incarnation of Jesus Christ? And if not, then I submit to you that this is the chief defense of the Christian claim of God incarnate. We don't know how God did it, but we know why he did it. And then my earlier statement that such a claim is the most stupendous claim in the history of religion becomes it is the most stupendous expression of divine love in the history of religion. 
So if you do believe in a creator God of love, but you have not yet put your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I invite you to do so today. I would be happy to speak with you to come and see me afterwards and we would sit down and talk about what faith in Christ means. <laughs>